Sense and sensibility continued. Edward assured them himself of his being in town within a very short time by twice calling in Berkeley Street, found on the engagement. Eleanor was pleased that he had called and still more pleased that she had missed him. The Dashwoods were so prodigiously delighted with the Middletons that though not much in the habit of giving anything, they determined to give them a dinner and soon after their acquaintance began, invited them to dine in Harley Street, where they had taken a very good house for three months. Their sisters and Mrs. Jennings were invited likewise, and John Dashwood was careful to secure Colonel Brandon, who, always glad to be where Miss Dashwood were, received his eager civilities with some surprise, but much more pleasure. They were to meet Mrs. Ferris, but Eleanor could not learn whether her sons were to be of the party. The expectation of seeing her, however, was enough to make her interested in the engagement, for though she could now meet Edward's mother without that strong anxiety which had once promised to attend such an introduction, though she could now see with her perfect indifference as to her opinion of herself, her desire of being in company with Mrs. Ferris, her curiosity to know what she was like, was as lively as ever." The interest with which she thus anticipated the party was soon afterwards increased, more powerfully than pleasantly, by her hearing that the Miss Steeles were also to be at it. So well they had recommended themselves to Lady Middleton, so agreeable had their assiduities made them to hear that Lucy was certainly not elegant, and her sister not even genteel. She was re- as she was as ready as Sir John to ask them to spend a week or two in Conduit Street, and it happened to be particularly evident to the Miss Steeles, as soon as the Dashwoods' invitation was known, that their visit should begin a few days before the party took place. Their claims to the notice of Mrs. John Dashwood, as the nieces of the gentleman for whom many years had had the care of her brother, might not have done much, however, towards procuring them seats at her table. But as Lady Middleton's guests knew, they must be welcome, and Lucy, who had long wanted to be personally known to the family, to have a nearer view of their character and her own difficulties, and to have an opportunity of endeavoring to please them, had seldom been happier in her life than she was on receiving Mrs. Dashwood's card. On Eleanor, its effect was very different. She began immediately to determine that Edward, who lived with his mother, must be asked, as his mother was, to a party given by his sister, and to see him for the first time after all that passed in the company of Lucy, she hardly knew how she could bear it. These apprehensions, perhaps, were not founded entirely on reason, and certain not all as truth. They were relieved, however, not by her own recollection, but by the goodwill of Lucy, who believed herself to be inflicting a severe disappointment when she told her that Edward certainly would not be in Harley Street on Tuesday, and even hoped to be carrying the pain still farther by persuading her that he was kept away by that extreme affection for herself, which he could not conceal when they were together. The important Tuesday came, young ladies, to this formidable mother-in-law. Pity me, dear Miss Dashwood, said Lucy as they walked up the stairs together, for the Middletons arrived so directly after Mrs. Jennings that they all followed the servant at the same time. There is nobody here but you that you can feel for me. I declare I can hardly stand. Good gracious, in a moment I shall see the person that all my happiness depends on, that is to be my mother. Eleanor could have given her immediate relief by suggesting the possibility of its being Miss Morton's mother rather than her own, whom they were about to behold. But instead of doing that, she assured her, and with great sincerity, that she did pity her, to the utter amazement of Lucy, who, 
though really uncomfortable herself, hoped at least to be an object of irrepressible envy to Eleanor. Mrs. Ferris was a little thin woman, upright even to her formality in her figure and serious even to sourness in her aspect. Her complexion was sallow and her features small, without beauty and naturally without expression, but a luckily contraction of the brow had rescued her countenance from the disgrace of insipidity by giving it the strong characters of pride and ill nature. She was not a woman of many words, for, unlike people in general, she proportioned them to the number of her ideas, and of the few syllables that did escape her, not one fell to the share of Miss Dashwood, whom she eyed with the spirited determination of disliking her at all events. Eleanor could not now be made unhappy by this behavior. A few months ago, it would have hurt her exceedingly, but it was not in Mrs. Ferris's power to distress her by it now, and the difference of her manners to the Miss Steeles, a difference which seemed promote, which seemed purposely made to humble her more, only amused her. She could not but smile to see the graciousness of both mother and daughter toward the very person, for Lucy was particularly distinguished, whom of all others they had known as much as she did, they would have the most anxious to mortify, while she herself, who had comparatively no power to wound them, sat pointedly slighted by both. But while she smiled at graciousness so misapplied, she could not reflect on the mean-spirited folly from which it sprung, nor observe the studied attentions with which the Miss Steeles courted its countenance, without thoroughly depressing them all for. Lucy was all exultation on being so honorably distinguished, and Miss Steele wanted only to be teased about Mr. Davis to be perfectly happy. The dinner was a grand one, the servants were numerous, numerous, and even and everything bespoke the mistress's inclination for show and the master's ability to support it. In spite of the new improvements and additions that were making the, to the New Orleans estate, and in spite of its owner having once been within some thousand pounds of being obliged to sell out at a loss, nothing gave any symptom that that indulgence, which he had tried to infer from it, no poverty of any kind except of conversation appeared, but there the deficiency was considerable. John Dashwood had not much to say for himself that was worth hearing, and his wife had still less. But there was no peculiar disgrace in this, for it was very much the case with the chief of their visitors, who almost all labored under one or the other of these disqualifications for being agreeable. Want of sense, either natural or improved, want of elegance, want of spirits, or want of temper. When the ladies withdrew to the drawing room after dinner, this poverty was particularly evident, for the gentlemen had supplied the discourse with some variety, a variety of politics, enclosing land and breaking horses. And then when it was over, one subject only entangled the ladies till coffee came in, which was the comparative heights of Harry Dashwood and Lady Middleton's second son, William, who were nearly of the same age. Had both the children been there, the affair might have been determined too easily by measuring them at once. But as Harry's was only present, it was all conjectural assertion on both sides, and everybody had a right to be equally positive in their opinion, and to repeat it over and over and again as often as they liked. The party stood thus. The two mothers, though each really convinced that her own son was the tallest, politely decided in favor of the other. The two grandmothers, with not but more sincerity, were equally earnest in support of their own descendant. Lucy, who was hardly anxious to please one parent than the other, though the boys were both remarkably tall for their age and could not convince that there could be the smallest difference in the world between them, and Miss Steele, with yet greater address, gave it as fast as she could in favor of each. 
Eleanor having once delivered her opinion on William's side, by which she offended Mrs. Ferris and Fanny still more, did not see the necessity of enforcing it by any farther assertion, and Marianne, when called for on hers, offended them all by declaring that she had no opinion to give, as she had never thought about it. Before her removing from New Orleans, Eleanor had painted a very pretty pair of screens for her sister-in-law, which being just now mounted and brought home, ornamented for her to present the drawing room. And these screens, catching the eye of John Dashwood on his following the other gentleman into the room, were viciously handed by him to Colonel Brandon for his admiration. These are done by my eldest sister, said he, and, you know, as a man of taste, will, I dare say, be pleased with them. I did not know whether you had ever happened to see any of her performances before, but she is in general reckoned to draw extremely well. The colonel, though disclaiming all pretensions to connoisseurship, warmly admired the screens, as he would have done anything painted by Miss Dashwood, and the curiosity of the others being, of course, excited, they were handed around for general inspection. Mrs. Ferris, not aware of their being Eleanor's work, particularly requested to look at them, and after they had received the gratifying testimony of Lady Middleton's approbation, Fanny presented them to the, her mother, considerately, considerately informing her at the same time that they were done by Miss Dashwood. Hmm, said Mrs. Ferris, very pretty, and without regarding them at all, returned them to her daughter. Perhaps Fanny thought for a moment that her mother had been quite rude enough, for coloring a little, she immediately said, they are very pretty, ma'am, aren't they? But then again, the dread of having been too civil, too encouraging herself, probably came over her. So, for she presently added, do you not think there's something in this Morton style of painting, ma'am? Does she paint the most delightfully? How beautifully her last landscape is done. Beautifully indeed, but she does everything very well. Marianne could not bear this. She was already greatly displeased with Mrs. Ferris, and still ill-timed praise of another at Eleanor's expense, though she had not had any notion of what was principally meant by it, provoked her immediately to say, with warmth, This is admiration of a particular kind. What is Miss Morton to us? Who knows or who cares for her? It is Eleanor whom we think and speak. And saying so, she took the screens out of her sister-in-law's hands to admire them herself, as they ought to be admired. Mrs. Ferris looked exceedingly angry, and drawing herself up, still more stiffly than ever, pronounced in retort to this bitter philippic. Miss Morton is, is Lord Morton's daughter. Fanny looked angry too, and her husband was all in a fright at his sister's audacity. Eleanor was much more hurt by Marianne's warmth than she had been by what produced it, but Colonel Brandon's eyes, as they were fixed on Marianne, declared that he noticed only what was amiable in it, the affectionate heart which could not bear to hear his sister slighted on the smallest point. Marianne's feelings did not stop there. The cold insolence of Mrs. Ferris's general behavior to her sister seemed to her to foretell such difficulties and distress to Eleanor as to her own wounded heart taught her to think with horror. And urged by a strong impulse of affectionate sensibility, she moved after a moment to her sister's chair and putting one arm around her neck and one cheek close to her said in a low but eager voice, Dear, dear Eleanor, don't mind them. Don't let them make you unhappy. She could say no more. Her spirits were quite overcome, and hiding her face on Eleanor's shoulder, she burst into tears. Everybody's attention was called, and almost everybody was concerned. Colonel Brandon rose up and went to them without knowing what he did. Mrs. Jennings, with a very intelligent, ah, poor dear, immediately gave her her salts, and Sir John felt so desperately enraged against the author of this nervous distress that he instantly changed his seat to one close by Lucy Steele and gave her in a whisper a brief account of the whole shocking affair. In a few minutes, however, Marianne was recovered enough to put an end to the bustle and sit down among the rest, though her spirits retained the impression of what had passed 
the whole evening. Poor Mary Ann, said her brother to Colonel Brandon in a low voice as soon as he could secure his attention. She has not had such good health as her sister. She is very nervous. She has not Eleanor's constitution, and one must allow that there is something very trying to a young woman who has been a beauty in the loss of her personal attractions. You would not think it, perhaps, but Marianne was remarkably handsome a few months ago, quite as handsome as Eleanor. Now you see it is all gone. Chapter 35 Eleanor's curiosity to see Mrs. Ferris was satisfied. She had found her in everything that could tend to make a farther connection between the families undesirable. She had seen enough of her pride, her meanness, and her determined prejudice against herself to comprehend all of the difficulties that must have perplexed the engagement and regarded the marriage of Edward and herself, and had been otherwise free. And she had seen almost enough to be thankful for her own sake that one greater obstacle preserved her from suffering under another of Mrs. Ferris's creation preserved her from all dependence upon her caprice or any solitude for her good opinion. Or at least, if she did not bring herself quite to rejoice in Edward's being fettered to Lucy, she determined that Lucy had more amiable. She ought to have rejoiced. She wondered that Lucy's spirits could be so much elevated by the civility of Mrs. Ferris, that her interest in vanity should so very much blind her as to make her attention, which seemed only paid to her because it was not Eleanor, appear a compliment to herself, or to allow her to derive encouragement from a preference only given her, because her real situation was unknown. But that it was so, had it not been declared by Lucy's eyes at the time, but it was declared over and over the next morning openly, for at her particular desire, Lady Middleton sat down in Berkeley Street on the chance of seeing Eleanor alone to tell her how happy she was. The chance proved a lucky one, for a message from Mrs. Palmer soon after she arrived carried Mrs. Jennings away. My dear friend, cried Lucy as soon as they were by themselves, I come to talk to you of my happiness. Could anything be so flattering as Mrs. Ferris's way of treating me yesterday? So exceedingly affable she was. You know how I dreaded the thoughts of seeing her, but the very moment I was introduced, there was such an affability in her behavior, as really should seem to say, had quite a fancy took to me. Now, was it not so? You saw it all, and was it not? were you not quite struck with it? She was certainly very civil to you. Civil, did you see nothing but only civility? I saw a vast deal more. Such kindness as fell to the share of nobody but me. No pride, no hauteur, no sister, just the same, all sweetness, oh affability. Eleanor wished to talk of something else, but Lucy still pressed her to own that which she had reason for her happiness, and Eleanor was obliged to go on. Undoubtedly, if they had known of your engagement, said she, nothing could be more flattering than their treatment of you. But as that is not the case, I guessed you would say so, replied Lucy quickly, but there was no reason in the world why Mrs. Ferris should seem to like me if she did not, and her liking me is everything. You shan't talk me out of my satisfaction. I am sure it will end well, and there will be no difficulties at all to what I used to think. Mrs. Ferris is a charming woman, and so is your sister. They are both delightful women indeed. I wonder I should never hear you say how agreeable Mrs. Dashwood was. To this Eleanor had no answer to make and did not attempt any. Are you ill, Miss Dashwood? You seem low. You don't speak. Are you sure you aren't well? I never was in better health. I am glad of it with all my heart, but really you do not look it. I should be very sorry to have you ill, you that have been the greatest comfort to me in the world. Heaven knows what I should have done without your friendship. Eleanor tried to make a civil answer, though doubting her own success. It seemed to satisfy Lucy, for she directly replied, 
Indeed, I am perfectly convinced of your regard for me, and next to Edward's love is the greatest comfort I have. Poor Edward. But now there is one good thing. We shall be able to meet, and meet pretty often, for Lady Middleton's delighted with Mrs. Dashwood, so we shall see a good deal in Harley Street, I dare say. And Edward spent half of his time with his sister. Besides, Lady Middleton and Mrs. Ferris will visit now, and Mrs. Ferris and your sister were both so good to say more than once that they should always be glad to see me. They're such charming women, and I'm sure if you ever tell your sister what I think of her, you cannot speak too high. But Eleanor would not give her any encouragement to hope that she should tell her sister. Lucy continued, I am sure I should have seen it in a moment if Mrs. Ferris had took a dislike to me. If she had only made me a formal curtsy, for instance, without saying a word, and never after having taken notice of me, and never looked at me in a pleasant way, you know what I mean. If it hadn't treated in that forbidden sort of way, and if she, if I should have gave it all up in despair, I could not have stood it. For where she does dislike, I know not is most violent. Eleanor was prevented from making any reply to this civil triumph by the doors being thrown open, the servants announcing Mr. Ferris and Edwards immediately walking in. It was a very awkward moment, and the countenance of each showed that it was so. They all looked exceedingly foolish, and Edwards seemed to have a, as great an inclination to walk out of the room again as to advance further into it. The very circumstance in its unpleasant form, which they would each have been most anxious to avoid, had fallen on them. There were not only three together, but were together without the relief of any person. The ladies recovered themselves first. It was not Lucy's business to put herself forward, and the appearance of secrecy must still be kept up. She could therefore only look her tenderness, and after slightly addressing him, said no more. But Eleanor had more to do, and so anxious was she, for his sake and her own, to do it well, that she forced herself, after a moment's recollection, to welcome him with a look and a manner that were almost easy and almost open, and another struggle, another effort, still improved them. She would not allow the presence of Lucy, nor the consciousness of some injustice toward herself, to deter her from saying that she was happy to see him, and that she had very much regretted being from home when he called before in the Berkeley Street. She would not be frightened from paying him those attentions which, as a friend and almost a relation, were his due to the observant eyes of Lucy, though soon she perceived them to be narrowly watching her. Her manners gave some reassurance to Edward, and he had courage enough to sit down, but his, his embarrassment still exceeded that of the ladies in proportion, which the case was rendered reasonable, though his sex might make it rare, for his heart had not the indifference of Lucy's, nor could his conscience have quite the case of Eleanor's. Lucy, with a demure and settled air, seemed determined to make no contribution to the comfort of others, and would not say a word, and almost everything that was said proceeded from Eleanor, who was obliged to volunteer all the information about her mother's health, their coming to town, etc., which Edward ought to have inquired about, but he never did. Her exertions did not stop there. For soon afterwards, she felt herself so heroically disposed as to determine, under the pretense of fetching Marianne, to leave the others by themselves, and she really did it, and that in the handsomest manner, for she loitered away for several minutes on the landing place with the most high-minded fortitude before she went to her sister. When that was once done, however, it was time for the raptures of Edward to cease, for Marianne's joy hurried her into the drawing room immediately. Her pleasure in seeing him was like every other of her feelings, strong in itself and strongly spoken. She met him with a hand that would be taken in a voice that expressed the affection of a sister. Dear Edward, she cried, this is a moment of great happiness. That would almost make amends for everything. 
Edward tried to return her kindness as it deserved, but before any such witness, he dared not say half of what he really felt. Again, they all sat down, and for a moment or two, all were silent. While Marianne was looking with the most speaking tenderness, sometimes at Edward, sometimes at Eleanor, regretting only that their delight in each other should be checked by Lucy's unwelcome presence, Eleanor or Edward was the first to speak, and it was to notice Marianne's altered looks and express his fear of her not finding London agree with her. Oh, don't think of me, she replied with spirited earnestness, though her eyes were filled, filled with tears as she spoke. Don't think of my health. Eleanor as well, you see. That must be enough for both of us. This remark was not calculated to make Edward or Eleanor more easy, nor to conciliate the goodwill of Lucy, who looked up at Marianne with very benign expression. Do you like London? said Edward, willing to say anything that might introduce another subject. Not at all. I expected much pleasure in it, but I have found none. The sight of you, Edward, is the only comfort it has afforded. And thank heaven, you are what you always were. She paused. No one spoke. I think, Eleanor, she presently added, we must employ Edward to take care of us on our return to Barton. In a week or two, I suppose, we shall be going, and I trust Edward will not be very unwilling to accept the charge. Poor Edward muttered something, but what it was nobody knew, not even himself. But Marianne, who saw his agitation and could not easily trace it to whatever cause best pleased herself, was perfectly satisfied and soon talked of something else. We spent such a day, Edward, in Harley Street yesterday. Too dull, so wretchedly dull. But I have much to say to you on that head, which cannot be said now. And with this admirable discretion, she did she defer the assurance of her finding their mutual relatives more disagreeable than ever, and of her being particularly disgusted with his mother, till they were more in private. But why were you not there, Edward? Why did you not come? I was engaged elsewhere. Engaged? But what with that, with such friends which were to meet? Perhaps, Miss Marianne, cried Lucy, eager to take some revenge on her. You think young men never stand up upon engagements, if they have no mind to keep them, little as well as great. Eleanor was very angry, but Marianne seemed entirely insensible for the sting, for she calmly replied, Not so. Indeed, for seriously speaking, I am very sure that conscience only kept Edward from Harley Street, and I really believe he has the most delicate conscience in the world, and most scrupulous in performing every engagement, however minute, and however it may make against his interest or pleasure. He is the most fearful of giving pain, of wounding expectation, and the most incapable of being selfish of anybody I ever saw. Edward, is it so? And I will say it. What, are you never to hear yourself praised? Then you must be no friend of mine, for those who will accept my love and esteem must submit to my open commendation. The nature of her commendation in the present case, however, happened to be particularly ill-suited to the feelings of two-thirds of her auditors, and was so very unexhilarating to Edward that he soon got up to go away. Going so soon, said Marianne, my dear Edward, this must not be. And drawing him a little aside, she whispered her persuasion that Lucy could not stay much longer. But even this encouragement failed, for he would go, and Lucy, who would have outstayed him had the visit lasted two hours, soon afterwards went away. What can bring her here so often, said Marianne on her leaving them? Could she not see that we wanted her gone? How teasing to Edward. Why so? We were all his friends, and Lucy has been the longest known to him of any. It is but natural that he should like to see her as well as ourselves. Marianne looked at her steadily and said, You know, Eleanor, this is the kind of talking which I cannot bear. 
if you only hope to have your assertion contradicted, as I must suppose to be the case, you ought to recollect that I'm the last person in the world to do it. I cannot descend to be tricked out of assurances that are not really wanted. Then she left the room and Eleanor dared not follow her to say more. For bound as she was to her promise to secrecy to Lucy, she could not give she could give no information that would convince Marianne, and painful as the consequences of her still continuing in error might be, she was obliged to admit it to submit to it. All that she could hope was that Edward would not often expose her or himself to the distress of hearing Marianne's mistaken warmth, nor to the repetition of any other part of the pain that had attended their recent meeting, and this she had every reason to expect. Chapter 36. Within a few days after the meeting, the newspapers announced to the world that the lady of Thomas Palmer Esquire was safely delivered of a son and heir, a very interesting and satisfactory paragraph, at least to all those intimately connected who knew it before. This event, highly important to Mrs. Jennings' happiness, produced a temporary alteration in the disposal of her time and influenced, in a like degree, the engagements of her young friends. For as she wished to be very much as possible with Charlotte, she went thither every morning, and soon she was dressed and did not return till late in the evening, and the Miss Dashwoods, at the particular request of the Middletons, spent the whole of every day in Conduit Street. For their own comfort, they would much rather have remained at least all morning in Mrs. Jennings' house, but it was not a thing to be urged against the wishes of everybody. Their hours were therefore made over to Lady Middleton and the two Miss Steeles, by whom their company was in fact a little valued, as it was professedly sought." They had too much sense to be desirable companions to the former, and by the latter they were considering with they were considered with a jealous eye as introducing on their ground and sharing their kindness which they wanted to monopolize. Though nothing could be more polite than Lady Middleton's behavior to Eleanor and Marianne, she did not really like them at all, because they neither flattered herself nor her children. She could not believe them good natured, and because they were fond of reading, she fancied them satirical perhaps without exactly knowing it was to be satirical, but that did not signify. It was this censure in common use and easily given. Their presence was a restraint both on her and Lucy. It checked the idleness of one and the business of the other. Lady Middleton was ashamed of doing nothing before them, and the flattery which Lucy was proud to think of and administer at other times, she feared they would despise her for offering. Miss Steele was the last discomposed of the three, and by their presence, as it was in their power to reconcile her to it entirely. Would either of them only have given half her a full moment account of the whole affair between Marianne and Mr. Willoughby, she would have thought herself amply rewarded for the sacrifice of the best place by the fire after dinner, which their arrival occasioned. But this conciliation was not granted, for though she often threw out expressions of pity for her sister to Eleanor, and more than once dropped a reflection on the inconsistency of Beau before Marianne, no effect was produced, but a look of indifference from the formal, former or disgust in the latter. An effort even yet lighter might have been made for their friend. Would they have only laughed at her about, at, laughed at her about the doctor? But so little, so little were they any more by the others in, inclined to indulge her that if Sir John dined from home, she might spend a whole day without hearing any other reality on the subject than what she was kind enough to bestow on herself. All of these jealousies and discontents, however, were so totally unsuspected by Mrs. Jennings that she thought it a delightful thing for the girls to be together and generally congratulated her young friends every night on having escaped the company of a stupid old woman so long. She joined them sometimes at Sir John's and sometimes at her own house. 
But wherever it was, she always came in excellent spirits, full of delight and importance, attributing Charlotte's well doing to her own care and ready to give so exact, so minute a detail of her situation that only Miss Steele had a curiosity enough to desire. One thing did disturb her, and of that she made her daily complaint. Mr. Palmer maintained the common but unfatherly opinion of his sex, of all infants being alike, and though she could plainly perceive at different times the most striking resemblance between this baby and every one of his relations on both sides, there was no convincing his father of it, no persuading him to believe that it was not exactly like every other baby of his same age, nor could he even be brought to acknowledge the simple proposition of its being the finest child in the world. I come now to the relation of a misfortune, which about this time befell Mrs. John Dashwood. It so happened that while her two sisters with Mrs. Jennings were first calling on her in Harley Street, another of her acquaintances had dropped in, a circumstance in itself not apparently, apparently likely to produce evil to her. But while the imaginations of other people will carry them away to form wrong judgments of our conduct and to decide on it by slight appearances, one's happiness must in some measures always be at the mercy of chance. In the present instance, this latest arrived lady allowed her fancy so far to outrun truth and probability that on merely hearing the name of the Miss Dashwoods and understanding them to be Mr. Dashwood's sisters, she immediately concluded them to be staying in Harley Street, and this mis misconstruction produced within a day or two afterwards cards of invitations for them as well as their brother and sister to a small musical party at her house. The consequence of which was that Mrs. John Dashwood was obliged to submit not only to the exceedingly great inconvenience of sending her carriage for the Miss Dashwoods, but what was still worse must be subject to all the unpleasantness of appearing to treat them with attention. And who could tell that they might not expect to go out with such with her a second time? The power of disappointing them, it was true, must always be hers. But that was not enough. For when people are determined on a mode of conduct which they know to be wrong, they feel injured by the expectation of anything better from them. Marianne had now been brought by degrees so much into the habit of going out every day that it was becoming a matter of indifference to her whether she went or not, and she prepared quietly and mechanically for every evening's engagement, though without expecting the smallest amusement from any, and very often without knowing till the last moment where it was to take her. To her dress and appearance, she was grown so perfectly indifferent as to not to bestow half consideration upon it. During the whole of her toilette, which it received from Miss Steele in the first five minutes of her being together when it was finished, nothing escaped her minute observation and general curiosity as she saw everything and asked everything. Was never easy until she knew the price of every part of Marianne's dress, could have guessed the number of her gowns altogether with better judgment than Marianne herself, and was not without hopes of finding out before they parted how much her washing cost per week and how much she had every year to spend upon herself. The impertinence of these kind of scrutinies, moreover, were generally concluded with a compliment, which, though meant as its decor, was considered by Marianne as the greatest impertinent of all. For all out undergoing an examination into the value of her gown, the color of her shoes, and the arrangement of her hair, she was almost sure of being told that upon her word, she looked vastly smart as she dared to say she would make a great many conquests.